You're listening to Voices of Family, the monthly podcast series from the BC Council for Families. Each month, we bring you thought-provoking discussions with notable figures and frontline workers in the family service community. Voices of Family takes you inside family services to hear what's new and on the horizon, making life better for BC families. My name is Marilee Peters, and I'm here today talking with Dr. Paul Kershaw, the Human Early Learning Partnership Scholar of Social Care, Citizenship, and the Determinants of Health at the University of British Columbia. Paul's one of Canada's leading thinkers about family policy. He's recently been in the news and in the public eye with his unveiling of a public policy campaign to create a new deal for families. Beginning in mid-October, with the launch of a series of provincial report cards on how families are doing now compared to 30 years ago, which outline a national picture of falling wages, flatlined incomes, rising costs, and disappearing time to spend with children, Kershaw has been crisscrossing the country, bringing his message to communities in every region. And that message is that Canada no longer works for all generations. Um, since the 1960s, Canadian governments have not introduced any major new social policies, which means that today families with young children are struggling to exist in a new reality with social support infrastructure designed for a pretty much vanished way of life, one where single incomes could support a family and many mothers stayed home to nurture their children. Paul Kershaw thinks that it's time now to change that, to wake up and recognize that there's a silent generational crisis those are his words, going on in our country, and it's time to put some dollars into supporting families. So, Paul, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, I've heard you speak about this before, and what I came away with was the urgency that's in your voice when you talk about this issue. But at the same time, you've been involved in uh, family policy research for some time, and you've been looking at these statistics for a while. When did it start to feel to you that we were actually facing a crisis? Was there a, a particular moment in time when you knew that like, you really had to take this message out to people? Well, I don't think there was one specific moment. Um, I think perhaps there has been a growing sense on my part that simply doing research to try to showcase to Canadians that we have a problem and that we can solve that problem if only we change policy, it, that hasn't worked alone. The idea that some novel researchers can come and do good research and share that information with policymakers and suddenly policy will change, I think a decade ago that's what I hoped, but um, uh, part of my naivete has been shown, and now I recognize that um, <clears throat> it is too hopeful to think that politicians can act on new information and lead us places if in fact the population isn't calling for us to go there. Mm -hmm. So I've been shifting my attention and, and I think the urgency you, you hear is more a sense that I need to be a bit more scrappy and feisty <laughs> to grab Canadians' attention because with everyone more and more busy these days, uh, the moments they allocate to thinking about social policy and to what we're doing with our politicians and our governments, they tend to fall into status quo debates and the status quo is not friendly right now to the generation raising young kids. Right. So you actually call uh, the generation raising kids today generation squeezed. So can you outline what exactly it is that's squeezing families and, sure. and what the consequences are of trying to raise a family inside that 
squeeze. Yeah, the squeeze can, becomes a, uh, apparent with a simple then and now story. Let me compare the mid-1970s when people were raising young kids to today, and I'll do it in uh, for all of Canada. Back in the mid-1970s, if I adjust for inflation, the average young couple was earning around $66,000 a year in, in today's dollars. If you flash forward, take the exact same couple, it turns out they're earning very little more, almost exactly the same amount. Except today, you have way more young women contributing to household income than you did a generation ago because dual earner homes have become far more the norm. And then on top of that problem, you have people with stalled household incomes paying for housing prices that are far, far higher, that have gone up 76% across the country, more than 150% in BC. So what does that mean? It leaves a generation under age 45 in their prime childbearing and rearing years that squeeze for time at home because it takes so much more adult time to make the same household income that one person could a generation ago. They're squeezed for income because even when they're not technically poor, the cost of living has gone up so much, especially in terms of housing. And then there's squeeze for services like childcare, which are increasingly important when you need two parents in the labor market in order to, one, pursue gender equality, and two, try and make the same household income that people were getting by with a generation ago on just one. So your New Deal for Families actually involves pretty much three broad policy changes, um, extended parental benefits, uh, $10 a day childcare, and flex time for working parents. Do you want to walk us through some of the numbers that you see behind needed for the implementation of, of that New Deal? I think as a total, you're saying $22 billion would be needed. Is that right? $22 billion investment across the country, about $2.8 billion in British Columbia. And let me put the $22 billion in context. That's less than 1.5% of our economy. It's not even a third of what we put into old age security and retirement savings plans, subsidies, and it's 16% of medical care. Indeed, over a recession between 2007 and 2010, we increased public medical care spending by wait for it. $22.5 billion. So the dollars are there even in tough economic times for priorities. And you're right, I'm wanting to say a new deal for families that focuses on those three policy changes ought to be a priority. And I'm very careful to emphasize the time that families need at home to care personally for their kids, side by side with the time they need in the labor market, which communities can help facilitate by putting in place services that nurture and give stimulating opportunities to young kids, but never replace what parents do. So the new mom and new dad benefits, you're right, it, it does try and make our parental leave system better. It would, one, make it more generous, so it's more affordable for families to take time at home. It would make the period available even for the self-employed. And it would have a real keen interest on getting dads involved, because we know that when dads are involved, it's good both for dad's happiness, it's good for children's overall uh, long-term health and well-being, it's good for gender equality, and it actually makes marriages work better, and so it could help us not have a divorce rate that's almost one in two. You do that by ultimately saying, let's make the leave period 18 months. Let's have a minimum benefit so that no matter what your earnings was before, whether you qualified for EI, we're not going to judge your caregiving to be less valuable than someone else's. And it turns out by doing so, we'll eliminate poverty for kids under age 18 months like that. Mm -hmm. And when we lengthen the period to make it closer to 18 months, we'll say, how do we allow parents to split that time? And more often than not, want to reserve at least six months of that time for dads. But we also live in a uh, context where people will say, 
we expect families to do all they can to care for and pay for their own. And that means jobs are an important part of social policy. But if it's going to take two people to earn a household income that one often could a generation ago, then we need to kick in $10 a day childcare in order to make it affordable for people to have enough time in the labor market to deal with the fact that wages are stalled and housing prices are up so much. And right now, uh, when people find childcare, if they're lucky enough, because there's only enough childcare or uh, regulated care or kindergarten for one in three kids in our province, about the same across the country, they end up paying the equivalent of another mortgage. And so $10 a day childcare will, one, make it far more uh, affordable, and two, make them far more prevalent. But here's the rub. We're not really talking about more children in childcare. What we're talking about is when they use it, the quality of those services, and how much uh, they cost. So there'll be fewer kids in childcare before age 18 months under this plan, more thereafter, but the big deal is we'll be paying people pay equity level wages in order to provide a high quality service that again supplements but never replaces what parents do at home. The third policy change is slightly more complicated to explain. I call it flex time. But what I mean to say is there are some Canadians who actually are struggling with low incomes because they don't have enough time in the labor market. But most Canadians work really long hours, on average 300 more hours per year than the typical Dutch, German, and Norwegian employee. That's more than eight hours of work. Eight, pardon me, more than eight weeks of work per year. I shouldn't whisper for the radio. <laughs> um, eight weeks of time, which I understand we devote to the labor market because wages are stalled, housing prices are up, and we're impressive workers. But it does crowd out time to be at home to care for young kids or aging parents. And so I'm wanting to say if we need more and more to have two parents in the labor market, does everyone have to work 40-plus hours per week for 49 to 50 weeks a year? And I would like to say... How could, could we not move more towards a 35-hour norm per week? Recognizing one other caveat. For those of us under age 45, it is highly unlikely we are going to retire at age 65. We're going to learn from G Greece and other places that as we live longer, we have to push our retirement ages up. And so as we work to maybe a, a retirement age of 68 or even closer to 70, I think some of us younger people are going to have to suck that up. But however, say as we work more years... Can we not have slightly more time per year to have better balance between caregiving responsibilities and employment responsibilities? Mm -hmm. So that was a long answer uh, to showcase the kinds of changes you would need to get the New Deal and how we would spend the $22 billion. Okay. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think the benefits are, well, they're undeniably compelling. But I think the pattern that we're seeing in Canadian governments, both federally and provincially over the past, you know, and years even, is one of increasing fiscal restraint. They're looking for, at reduced spending. They're telling us that people want to see tax cuts, not spending increases. And certainly that seems to be something that's resonating with voters right now. So how, how do you see being able to change voters' attitudes to be calling on their governments to, to change these, these standpoints. Well, one of the challenges that we have is that for the generation raising young kids these days, and generally I said those under 45 is a safe way to categorize them, they have been adults over a period where they've never witnessed any social policy change. Mm -hmm. It just hasn't happened since the <laughs> 70s. And in the absence of having witnessed it, I think that our imagination is so much more constrained. And so partly what I need to go and do is 
again, scrap for the attention of these Generation Squeeze folks and say, did you know we had this proud tradition of building and adapting policy? It started with our public schools and universities in the late 1800s, and then we were building roads and bridges and, and banks and markets, and we sent people overseas to fight in wars to defend these things, and when they came back, we adapted again. We built veterans insurance, and then workers' compensation, unemployment insurance, and then the busiest policymakers of our time happened to be well, many of the, our grandparents, really, the parents of baby boomers, they put in place hospital insurance, old age security, and capped it all off in one single year. I'd like people to write this down. 1966. That's when we introduced our Canada Medical Care Act and the Canada Public Pension Plan. In one single year. Which remain our two most important social commitments to one another as citizens. But since then, we've done very little else on the social policy side. And so I need to remind younger Canadians that we have done stuff in the past. And it's made an enormous difference for those who are approaching retirement right now. In the mid-70s, 29% of seniors were poor. Today, fewer than 5% of seniors are poor. Why? Because we changed policy that said it shouldn't be that way. And if we can have that policy success for our later life course stages, we could repeat it in earlier moments. So it's partly reminding people. Then the second thing is, I have to make those under age 45 slightly annoyed, angry, frustrated, mm -hmm. feeling slighted. And so I tell my then and now story and say, it has become far harder to raise a family in this country than it was a generation ago. It's not just you if you're feeling time squeezed or income squeezed or service squeezed. That's not your personal failing. That's because we have this environment around us which has changed so much, but we have not adapted as a society. And while it's become harder to raise a family, it's become easier, not easy, but easier to retire. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is, while incomes are stalled for young people between 1976 and today, they've gone up about 20% for those approaching retirement between 1976 and today. And on top of that, if you owned a house in the late 70s or early 80s, even if you were paying way higher interest rates at the time, your wealth in that home has gone up enormously. So our personal financial circumstances for people approaching retirement now are on average far better than they were a generation ago. And yet despite that, those approaching retirement are leaving larger government debts, larger environmental debts. Mm -hmm. And I think what it means is we have an environment, uh, pardon me, an intergenerational tension at play. And so that's my second strategy. I'm reminding people about our proud policy tradition and then I'm saying, you know what? Your generation squeezed and possibly also generation screwed. <laughs> well, this is really, this is what I find the most provocative part of, of, of your whole campaign. And that is the, this, well, this intergenerational tension, which in some cases has been interpreted as really a broadside against baby boomers. So... But yet you're doing it intentionally. But how how do you deal with baby boomers feeling attacked? It's true. I have been called a boomer hater. Um, <laughs> I've been labeled that on radio several times. It's almost a moniker now that I accept. You say it fast enough. It's boomer hater, terminator. It's like some countercultural superhero. But I'm not quite that good. Um, it's true. I am wanting to showcase that there is a tension. But I don't think my showcasing it means I'm making it. Mm -hmm. And I really want to draw that distinction. And my message is that we in this country want a Canada that works for all generations. And right now I'm saying it currently doesn't. That doesn't mean I want it to 
to work for the generation raising young kids and not seniors down the road. I just want to say, let's make sure we maintain some of our strengths for supporting seniors with their medical care and pensions and having eliminated poverty for the most part. And let's try and do some other things for younger Canadians. And this is the third part of my strategy. I am wanting to put up a mirror to baby boomers and say, do you see what I see? Because I suspect you see that you've worked really hard to raise good kids and build your homes and families and contribute as employees or build firms, and you've been good citizens. And that's all true. But you did it in a context that's very different than now. You didn't earn the fact that housing prices were so much lower when you were a young person. You didn't earn the fact that they've gone up so much since then. You didn't earn the fact that wages were far higher back in real terms in the mid-1970s than they are today. And, you know, that was good timing. And so let's just recognize that good timing still doesn't exist. So you may want to adapt because it'll be good for your kids and grandkids. But more than that, the fact that we are leaving larger environmental and fiscal debts, even though our economy has gone up 108%, it is producing on average an extra $35,000 per household today than it did in the 70s. And yet even still, the generation raising young kids is struggling. That's not the kind of legacy that people in the social scientists or historians are going to write well about in our history books. And I think baby boomers want to leave a positive legacy. So my, my third strategy is to say, I may be a bit of a gadfly here to baby boomers, but it's in, with the intention of saying, there's only so much time left for you to get your legacy right. Let me help you do that. And it will turn out to be very good for the people you love, your kids and your grandchildren. Mm-hmm. Well, for sure, anybody who works with families and who knows the struggles that, that families with young kids are going through, for them, your your whole proposal, the New Deal, it, it strikes a tremendous chord. And people, I think, working in community services know that big changes are needed. Do you know particularly what the reaction has been from people working in community services? Oh, I think that the, the reaction has been very positive. Um, I mean, one of the things that the New Deal manages to do is, uh, in the generation raising young kids, we are purposely working to not divide but to unite. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the way our electoral debates have gone is you had one party proposing, oh, let's come up with ways to have parents have more time at home, especially moms. And another party say, well, we need child care services. And then we have to pick between them. Mm-hmm. And you start dividing some parents from others. And what the New Deal says is both of those ideas are pretty darn good. Uh, how, how, you know, it's not an either or. Let's have our cake and eat this one too. And so I think people in the social services are seeing that we are trying to unite. Without doubt, I am very purposeful in the language that I use. Um, sometimes I'm wanting to distance from the language of early child development and vulnerability. I'm definitely trying to distance uh, the dialogue away from child poverty. Um, and that sometimes makes partners a little bit nervous because they're right. There's way too much poverty amongst young kids. And we have some problems with too much vulnerability amongst young children. And so I think, though, what we need to recognize is the way we've talked about that for the last decade has simply not attracted broad 
uh, tension in Canada. Mm -hmm. And so I think we can either continue to talk in the same ways, which haven't worked, or we can try and know why we were talking about those things, but t tell the story slightly differently. And so my then and now story uh, and my discussion of Generation Squeeze is very purposeful to try and shift the dialogue a wee bit. Because when we get public policy right in this country, it's when we target it to the majority. When we at the very least make sure it's going to benefit the broad middle class. And we do that with K-12 education. We do that with medical care and we do it with pensions. And no one would critique those policies for really failing low-income people or for not having enough adaptability for people who have um, extra language needs or a range of other unique um, characteristics that we need to address. It's only when we want to target vulnerable populations where we suck in Canada. <laughs> our income assistance is shabby. Mm -hmm. um, our ability to really support refugees and so on is weak. When we target, we tend to focus, say, oh, we're going to be targeting support or assistance to people who've made poor decisions. And so it just lends us to a discourse that I think is problematic. This even happens when we talk about child vulnerability. It, when, if I only say that word once in a talk that goes 45 minutes, the first question I will get is about why do we have so many vulnerable kids? And the answer that comes up more often than not is, well, my kids are okay, but I guess most parents are just lousy parents. And it's <laughs> the wrong discussion. Because it's true, the majority of kids who are vulnerable reside in middle and upper income households. And either we accept we have a generation of parents today who are just worse, or we recognize that around us things have changed so dramatically and we as a country haven't adapted. And I can tell you, the generation raising young kids today, they ain't lazy. They work more hours in the labor market than any other group of Canadians. And on top of that, they come home and perform more unpaid caregiving hours than older Canadians. So by any metric, they're hard workers. And some people say, well, they're consumerists. They're making bad decisions with their money. But then I stand back and I say, who's buying the big homes and the granite countertops and going on all the trips? And demographically, it's not people under age 45. More often than not, they're buying the small homes or the condos or the fixer-uppers. It's the people who had homes in the 70s and 80s, and they're now upgrading, even though, actually, they have fewer kids at home. One last thought. Going back to, am I a boomer basher? I think we have some real retirement issues that we need to pay attention to, especially as the global economic recession has come on and that's hurt the stock market on which people were relying as they phase into retirement. And one of the things happening, we are living longer, so that's an issue. We need mm -hmm. to address the isolation as we live longer, and that's a new risk. But also people approaching retirement have older kids at home still. And because it's become harder to raise a young family, it's actually because just being under 45 is harder these days. You have more student debt load, wages just aren't what they are, the cost of living is high, and so you have more older, more 30-somethings even at home and late 20-somethings. And some boomers will say, that's compromising my ability to retire. I'm spending in ways on those older children than I ever expected to, mm -hmm. which gives them even more reason to want to support a new deal for families because it's an important part of their retirement. We are going to make it more affordable for young people to actually start out in that adult, young adult stage of having families because, well, I can't explode the market for housing, and I don't think anyone wants to. I can make sure taking time at home with a newborn doesn't cost you a second mortgage, and then mm -hmm. buying childcare services doesn't cost you a third. Yeah, I mean, are you hearing from parents, or from not from parents, but from young people who are telling you that they're 
deliberately not starting a family because they feel they can't afford it? Absolutely. In many ways, what we have, what we witness now in Canada with our social and economic changes to which we're not adapting with policy is effectively an unofficial one-child policy. Mm -hmm. People are delaying their having kids much, much longer. All the data shows that. I mean, young women really have made huge changes in a generation, and they've been the superheroes between the 70s and now. Women generally have stretching ever further, farther, <laughs> faster, needing to be great at home and great on the job and in our boardrooms. And if women out there listening to this feel tired? Well, you ought to, because you're doing a damn impressive range of things. Policy hasn't adapted to make that far easier. Indeed, the New Deal for Families has three policy recommendations. All three of them have their origins in the 1970 report of the Royal Commission on the Status of Women, and the fact that we have not made progress on that front is one reason why Canada is ranked 18th amongst affluent countries in terms of our gender equality. That is not an impressive ranking. The other thing is men have been slightly slower to adapt. It's t you know, in the past I was a bit bitchy with men. I was like, come on guys, like what are we doing? You know, we really are uh, making it harder for the women in our lives and the daughters in our lives. We could pick up more slack at home. We really could. We, we, there was a, much more of the responsibility for caregiving that we could share at home. Mm -hmm. But it's become tougher for men because the norms around what good men are, what strong, muscly, masculine men are, still has a lot to do with being a breadwinner. And the reality is wages have changed, especially for men. And you, it's harder for than ever for men to be that breadwinner who can earn the family wage. And I think that's tough psychologically for men in a way that it wasn't in the past. And, um, you know, so I have greater sympathy there. And that's one of the reasons why, as men are struggling to redefine what it means to be a great man and a great dad and so on, is breadwinning is more complicated. Reserving this time through parental leave to say, we think being a studly masculine sexy guy is in large part about how good you are with your newborn. Um, is, is a really important message to be sending to dads and to employers and to communities generally. Well, and, and the flex time that you're proposing as well will certainly largely affect men and, and the time that they're able to spend with families. What kind of response have you had from employers around that particular aspect of your proposal? Well, uh, mixed. I mean, some are skeptical that, oh my goodness, you're, you're wanting to add one more constraint on our bottom line. Mm -hmm. And what I need to do is remind people two things. Unfortunately, I've had the opportunity to work with Warren Beach, who's uh, the chief financial officer of Sierra Systems, one of a really big company in Canada. And he and two of his chartered accountants worked with my team at UBC to say, well, what is the business community paying for the status quo? Because we pay a price when we have generation squeeze coming to the office with struggling with for time at home, struggling for income after the cost of housing, and struggling to find services. Employers see that all the time. They see it in part because gen squeeze is more likely to be absent a number of times in the year. Mm -hmm. Who pays for that? Employers. They are more likely when they're squeezed to have feel stressed. When they're more likely to be stressed, they're going to get sick. And that means you go to use prescription drugs. You go to physiotherapists or whatnot and, and doctors. And a lot of the time that's being paid for by extended health premiums that our employers pay for. Mm -hmm. And then every year, 17,000 BC employees 
almost always women, say it's just too tough to balance the responsibilities at home with the responsibilities here at the job. Even though I've been on the job for a while, I've been trained here, I am highly productive, mm -hmm. and but you know what, I just can't make it work. So you, you're gonna have to go find someone else and then recruit them, train them, and wait for them to get up to speed. And that's three ways that firms pay just when the squeeze prevents people from really being at work. Mm -hmm. And Warren Beach and his CA colleagues, along with my team at UBC, estimated BC that costs the business community $600 million annually and across the country $4 billion. And I haven't even talked about how when the squeeze generation is stressed, they're less productive when they're actually at work. So this is a minimum, it's a floor about what it's costing the business community. Mm -hmm. So when I share that, that does attract the attention of firms and employers. And what my point is around flex time is I want to make it cheaper for for employers to use people up to 35 hours. I want to cut them a break, but then I want to make it more expensive for them to use uh, people up for longer than 35 hours. So savvy employers, in many ways, I think, can find ways to save dollars with their HR um, and, uh, and, and find ways to use more people slightly longer hours. And that's going to be critical because the data all show that productivity in Canada is weak. We may work 300 hours more than the typical Dutch, German, and Norwegian citizen, but productivity per hour is higher in those other countries. Wow. So it's not necessarily that by short shrinking hours, we're actually going to get less out of people. It will just actually get more per hour, which will be valuable for the employer. So let's take a little trip into the future. Uh, the New Deal for Families is in place. Yeah. It's been in place now for, for five years. Do you want to describe the the country you see around you what's it like raising kids oh it's like that? being at the beach right? <laughs> it's sunny and warm i mean what we will have is a a place where moms dads and kids have more time together at home especially when kids are under age 18 months but the flex time will ensure that um, all throughout their preschool years we are going to have that better balance and not stretch people's incomes in a way that's untenable given that wages are lower and housing prices are up. We're actually, because we'll make childcare less expensive, we'll be saving people money in their pre, uh, when their kids are preschool age. And even for one earner couples who want to have a parent home full time, our new mom and new dad benefits will effectively add about an extra fourteen dollars to $15,000 in that first year, <laughs> which they could then stretch over the next four and have the equivalent of a part-time childcare space, uh, the cost for that injected into their household. That's what's going to go on in the homes of families. We're going to have better work-life balance, uh, no hit on income, and over time for women it'll actually mean more income because they will not be foregoing so many uh, opportunities for promotions and wage increases, etc. So we'll actually see over time more income come into the household. For society, generally, we'll be seeing that schools will be making better use of existing dollars because instead of having eight kids who are vulnerable in one way or another in each classroom, it'll be more like two or three. Just think what the BC Teachers Federation could do with existing dollars if they had far fewer vulnerable kids in all of their classes. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to be having our medical care system, which will be far, we'll be able to contain the expenditures more because by reducing the squeeze on the generation raising young kids, the adults will be going to hospitals and going to doctors less often, and their kids will get a better start, which means they're going to be healthier throughout their lives. And also, when kids have fewer challenges before they get to school, they're far less likely to be incarcerated. So we're going to be saving expenditures on crime. Big dollars. 
we are going to be a place that will finally actually live up to our charter of rights and freedoms and have gender equality. Because the glass ceiling, the reason we have far fewer women in senior management positions or in our boardrooms has everything to do with what still happens after the birth of a first child. We still then go back to a kind of neo-traditional division way where we expect women to do that more than men, and it plays out in our employment hiring practices in ways that are bad for women and slightly better for men, and it's just not right. We're going to have pay equity for people who work in childcare. They're not going to be paid parking lot attendant wages. They're going to be paid <laughs> a wage that is uh, respectful for the education we expect from them, the importance of their work, and which is much more on par with average earnings in our country. We are going to lessen our environmental footprint because you know when we spend more time together that has a lesser environmental footprint than when we spend on stuff. Mm -hmm. And lastly, for anyone who's worried about our overall economic competitive position internationally, we can't simply rely on recruiting uh, more and more immigrants from elsewhere. That's maybe an important part of a strategy, but we have to be worried about are we growing our own pool of talented, clever people. And it turns out that the greatest brain drain that we ought to be worrying about in this country happens when we put a squeeze on the people raising kids under age six because we are compromising so much of their early potential. Human beings are most sensitive to their environments when they are young, and if we don't get those environments right, both in what, by supporting to have strong, healthy, happy homes and strong, healthy, happy communities, we literally compromise the potential of our future labor supply. Well, Paul, at the beginning of this conversation, I think I, I said that there was a note of urgency in your voice when you talked about this. And I think I'm going to change that now and say it's enthusiasm. <laughs> There's so much enthusiasm in, in what you're describing. And, and I think it's infectious. Probably people who are listening are all fired up right now. What would you say to them about what they can do to, to help well, I think the enthusiasm does need to translate into urgency. We are at a moment where, yeah, we are seeing Canadians' life uh, spans increase and increase and increase, but given what we're seeing with high rates of child obesity, et cetera, because of the constraints we have on Gen Squeeze, um, we're likely to see that generation be the first in a long time that doesn't live as long. Mm -hmm. We have some really serious things happening in front of us where we have to prevent them before they get out of control. So that means all Canadians of all age groups need to look in the mirror and say, what kind of Canada do I want? And we, uh, I, we have a choice. We can either ignore the intergenerational breach or we can recommit to once again being a country that works for all generations. And that is going to be what I think most Canadians want, but it requires some change. First, those under 45 have to care less about who's being voted off some darn island on TV and care more about who's being voted into our legislatures in Victoria and in Ottawa. And that requires not just even a moment at a ballot box, but getting informed in advance. Get, uh, stop blaming ourselves, get better at, uh, start speaking out, and get better informed. You can partly do that by going to blogs.ubc.ca slash New Deal for Families and get more information. And then we need to reclaim the fun that was the sex, drugs, and rock and roll of the 1960s and make it for our time because in the middle of that sex, drugs, and rock and roll, which really did look like fun, it sure does in the movies, <laughs> It was filled with small p politics, war or no war, mm -hmm. gender equality, civil rights. These questions were being discussed. So now we under age 45 need to gather again and say, what are we going to do about the fact that wages have stalled, housing prices are way higher, there are no services in place, and no one's talking about it. 
But we can do that not just by writing a letter to our MLA, but make it fun. So I'm proposing that we get out there and we start hosting generation squeezed parties. Or if you're really feeling feisty, <laughs> generation screwed parties. Or WTF parties. Where's the family? And I mean, have people over for beer, wine, coffee, whatever your pleasure is. And for five minutes, talk about the then and now story both in terms of incomes, um, women's labor force participation, housing prices, and also how we used to build policy. Simultaneously, we need boomers to get on board for a better deal for their kids and grandkids. And that means having boomers think about the intergenerational tensions that it's emerging. Is that the legacy that people want to leave? And we saw in a poll recently some things that made me a wee bit frightened. A poll recently asked Canadians of all ages who ought to be a priority for public investment, and they answered as follows if you were Canadian over age 55. 70% mm -hmm. said seniors should be a higher top priority. Just 26% of Canadians age 55 and older thought families with preschool kids should be a priority, and only 16% thought young adults should be a priority. Now, you might think that, well, that's just, oh, you know, every generation is going to look out for its own interests. And so young people, they're probably saying they should be a priority. But it turns out Canadians under age 45 are as likely to say that seniors should be a high priority as they are to say they should be a really? high priority. So I have to say, I'm hoping on that polling day, it was just a bad day for Canadians over age 55, that they aren't so inward focused. But I have one thing I have to push back on. The same poll said, uh, gave Canadians two options. Do you think a greater share of Canada's prosperity should be invested in families with young kids? Or, boomers and seniors earned their share of Canada's prosperity and deserve to benefit from it. Others can wait their turn. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that 80% of Canadians 55 plus said, wait your turn. Oh, no. And I want to say... You worked hard if you were a Canadian over age 55. But let me say, repeat something I said earlier. You did not earn the fact that wages were higher in real terms. You did not earn the fact that housing was more affordable, nor did you earn the fact that housing prices have gone up remarkably. Those are things that were just good timing. Yes, we want all people to exercise responsibility. We want people under 45 to do all they can to pay for and take care of their own. But they're working longer hours than anyone else right now, and they're doing more unpaid caregiving than anyone else right now. So what can we do to say, if you are having that great work ethic and yet still struggling, how can we adapt policy? A new deal for families can do that, and we need all Canadians to get on board calling for it. Thank you so much, Paul. It's been tremendously interesting talking to you today. My pleasure. That wraps it up for this episode of Voices of Family. Check the BC Council for Families website next month for another episode on the latest in family services at www.bccf.ca. To keep our series relevant and engaging to family service professionals, we're listening to your feedback from the listener survey located on the Learning Network webpage below the podcast player. Let us know your thoughts on this episode and tell us who you'd like to hear interviewed. Thanks, and see you next time.